Welcome to Still Becoming, a podcast about how it's never too late to become more free, more yourself, or try something new. I'm Monica DeCristina, a wife, mother, and practicing psychotherapist. Through my own journey, starting with my struggles with anxiety years ago, that led to my professional work as a therapist now, I am fascinated with the process of how we become who we are. We will hear from people telling their stories of becoming and overcoming, as well as from experts helping us learn about our own process in the world. We are not designed to stay the same. Our stories are still being written. We are all still becoming. On this episode, I'm interviewing Maisie Robinson. She's a licensed professional counselor and speaker specializing in helping women discover their true voice and navigate self-worth and self-esteem challenges. Maisie is a graduate of Vanderbilt University and has a master's degree in professional counseling from Georgia State University. Maisie is also the founder of Cultivate, which through its bi-monthly gatherings and counseling center, focuses on helping women cultivate joy, courage, and freedom in the pursuit of emotional and spiritual health. In this interview, Maisie teaches us through her experience and her expertise that healing is often really painful, and sometimes it even gets worse before it gets better. But making those choices of health in our own lives transforms them and then those around us, and nothing is wasted. She shares pain is a great motivator, that for most of us, We change because we get enough pain to where the pain of staying the same becomes greater than the fear of change. On her dream of starting Cultivate, which is having a tremendous impact in her city, she says, one day I realized, oh, I'm just staying where I am because I'm scared and I can't live like that. And that she made the promise to herself that she wanted to live a brave life and she didn't want to give in to fear anymore. Maisie's courage will give you courage. Maisie's expertise and focus on women finding their voice will make you take pause and look at your own life. Her refusal to live scared will help you be bold, and her call to emotional and spiritual health will inspire you. Nothing is wasted. I can't wait to share this interview with you. Well, I'm so excited to have my dear friend Maisie on the podcast today. Um, And Maisie is... um, really a a cheerleader of women and she does that professionally but also um, personally and I have gotten to benefit from that. Maisie is a friend that has actually helped me be brave by her example. She's helped me be brave by supporting me. She's helped me be brave by believing in me when I didn't believe in myself. And she's helped me be brave by believing in my own dreams. And I I run them by her all the time. And so she knows all of them. Um, But Maisie is a therapist and a speaker. And she's the founder of Cultivate Gatherings and Cultivate Counseling. And she's just a wealth of knowledge. So I feel like I'm about to give everyone a big present when they hear um, Maisie talk. Um, But I would love if you just introduce yourself too. Yes. First of all, thank you so much for having me. This is mm-hmm. such an honor to be here and to get to do the podcast with you. And that was way too generous of an introduction, but thank you. It's all true. And um, yeah, just so excited to be here. So a little bit about me. I am a licensed counselor here in the Atlanta area. I've been practicing for 13 years now. 
I have worked in a couple of different treatment centers in Atlanta. I've worked at a counseling center and then in 2013 I went out on my own and um, started my own private practice and so I have been doing that since 2013 and that has been a wonderful adventure uh, in just learning more about myself and realizing ooh, I can do things I never thought that I could do in terms of having a small business and starting a business. Um, I specialize in working with adult women on self-worth, self-esteem challenges, relationship concerns, and life stage transitions. Uh, like you said, I also do a lot of speaking um, around the city to different groups and organizations. Uh, what else? I have been married for 16 years this July, and I have two little boys, an eight-year-old and a three-and-a-half-year-old who will be four in August. And I'm an Atlanta native, so I'm like a rare bird. Yeah, yeah. very rare. Yes. Um, and so then if we just were to dive right in um, about this, this specialty of, you know, women with self-worth and women finding their voices and... Um, Tell us a little bit about why you became a therapist, because it's a, it's an interesting field, and and why you found yourself, you know, really focusing in on these areas in particular. Yes, so that's a that's a great question. Most definitely, what I do professionally is a result of my personal life wow. and my personal journey. Um, the tagline for my practice is helping women discover their true voice, and some people sometimes people will ask me. Why are you so passionate about helping women find their voice? And the answer that always comes to mind is because I once lost mine. And so just that discovering, rediscovering a voice is so important to me. So my story of how I became a therapist, um, grew up, born and raised uh, in Atlanta, in Metro Atlanta, and then went to college, went to Vanderbilt in Nashville, and I was a vocal performance major. And so... In a former life, I was a classically trained yeah. opera singer, which is kind of crazy. <laughs> I didn't know it was opera. Yeah, yeah. It's amazing. Um, so I was a lyric soprano, and mm -hmm. so really what that means is I sang a lot of Mozart. And um, so I was at Vanderbilt, and um, throughout college, I struggled off and on with pretty significant performance anxiety. Mm -hmm. and it would come for a month or two and then I'd be okay and it would come back for two or three months and then I'd be okay and and this kind of happened off and on all throughout college I had been performing and involved in music um, since I was seven years old so music was my entire identity it was my entire world like everything was wrapped up in music for me and so I graduated from college and then went to Florida State to get my master's in vocal performance. And after my first semester in grad school, I came home at Christmas and I was just a wreck. Yeah. And I was very depressed, I was incredibly anxious, I couldn't eat, I did not want to go back. I was just really kind of a, a shell. Oh, wow. And I had just essentially burned out in music and burned out in my life and I was crispy and so I told my parents I said I don't want to go back and they said well we think you should go back we, we think you should finish the degree you know it, it's important to get your, your master's and I was like oh, okay and so then a few days later uh, 
my dad came home from work and, and I still remember I was sitting in his blue lazy boy in, in the living room and he came in and he said, you know, I've been thinking about this and if you have no marketable skills. And okay, I, said, okay. I said, I know the world does not care that I can sing Mozart. Mm -hmm. Like it does not translate yeah. to many things in life. And he said, so there's no point in you finishing this degree. Um, but you need to figure out what, what you're going to do with your life. Okay. And so, um, I went back down to Tallahassee, withdrew from school, moved out of my apartment, came back to Atlanta. My parents paid for me to uh, get an apartment. I moved into my apartment and I enrolled at Oglethorpe, which is a small university in the Atlanta area in their teaching certification program. Um, because I thought, okay, what is the most practical thing in the world? Yes. <laughs> what, what is the opposite right. of being yes. an opera singer? Something I can do in any state. Something I can yeah. do in any state that I can always find yeah. a job. Like I was going for total practicality. Mm -hmm. I thought, teaching. Yeah. What would I like to teach? Well, I've always found history interesting. Like I, I didn't want to teach music. Mm -hmm. I didn't want to be a choral teacher, mm -hmm. director. I, mm -hmm. You know, I totally wanted to leave music. And so withdrew from Florida State, came home and moved into my apartment enrolled at Oglethorpe and um, the interesting part of that story is yeah. that my cousin my first cousin my I come from a very large family and so all of my first cousins are actually old enough to be my my parent because my mother was the youngest of okay, five this yeah. is very tangential yes no but, but that's a lot of cousins older but, cousins yes, yes. <laughs> but it's a neat part of the story mm -hmm. my first cousin Anne was a professor at Oglethorpe and oh, she was cool. one of the education professors and so Anne uh, plays a huge role in this story and eventually in my life because she was able to get me into Oglethorpe within a week. Okay. <laughs> so, Way to go, Anne. Yeah, so I owe a lot yeah. to Anne. So um, enrolled at Oglethorpe and I ended a four-year uh, addicted, very abusive relationship. I had dated the same person all throughout college. Mm -hmm. It was a very unhealthy relationship mm -hmm. uh, for both of us. Yeah. And... Um, and ended that relationship. So in 10 days from January 3rd to about January 15th, my entire life changed except for my name. And that's um, astounding. It, it, it is, it is, mm -hmm. as, you know, when I think about it now, particularly like through the lens of a therapist, right. um, it is astounding that everything in my life changed everything that I had been investing in for the past four to 15, 17 years of my yeah. life totally ended in yeah. a, in a week's period of time. Well, you know, one question that occurred to me <clears throat> when you're telling your story about ending, um, you know, this focus on music that had been mm -hmm. your whole life and then ending this four year relationship that had probably consumed four years of your life yeah. as well. Mm -hmm. and, and that ending helped you then go through a period of healing, which was hard, but then start all these new chapters how did you get, and this is maybe too big of a question, but I'm curious, when you look back, how did you get brave enough to end those? Were you, were, were you fed up? Mm. Was it just too much? You know, how did you get brave enough to say, you know what, I, I, I can't do this anymore. I don't know what I'm doing next, but I can't do this anymore. Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. I th pain is a great motivator. Wow. You know, yeah. and I think for any of us, there are obviously exceptions to this, but I think for most of us, um, we change because we get in enough pain okay. to where the, the pain of staying the same becomes mm -hmm. greater 
than the pain and fear of change. Yes. And that was really mm-hmm. what it came down mm-hmm. to me. I was in a lot so of pain. pain. Just yeah. mm-hmm. My life on many levels was just not in a, a healthy place. Mm-hmm. I wasn't emotionally healthy. I wasn't spiritually healthy. I, I wasn't mentally healthy as mm-hmm. I could have been. And pain is just a great motivator. motivator. And, yeah. and I reached the place where something had to change mm-hmm. because I was a shell of, yeah. of who I had been. And I had really lost myself. Yeah. Um, in that year, 2000, I did a lot of reading. I spent a lot of time by myself mm-hmm. in that year. I really only saw my parents and this one particular childhood friend who lived near me at the time. Mm-hmm. But I spent a lot of time by myself, a lot of time in my apartment, and read a lot. And one of the books that I read was uh, Mary uh, Piper's Reviving Ophelia. Mm-hmm. And I would heard about this book for years because my uh, junior and senior year English teacher in high school loved this book yeah. and she always talked about this book and mm-hmm. um, and so I had remembered it and I think I saw it at the bookstore and I thought oh this is the book Dr. Harris always talked about mm-hmm. and so I decided to read it and the book is a wonderful book and it's it's essentially about um, female lifespan development and and about how women lose their voice Wow! and I read the book and and I just thought oh my goodness I'm not crazy. Like yeah. I'm not damaged. I'm not yeah. I'm not totally broken. I have just lost yeah. my voice and this happens to a lot of women and I've lost my voice for a lot of reasons. Yes. And it was just a real light bulb moment mm-hmm. of I have lost myself and I've lost my voice and and I, I kind of made a promise to myself that I would find her again. I did mm-hmm. not know how. Yeah. And and at the time I really didn't know um, I didn't know what the end of that road would look like. I think there was still a doubt in my mind that I would always be scarred. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was determined to be well. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And again, I, I don't really rem- Those two things both sat in my mind, but yeah. I was determined not to, to mm-hmm. stay where I was, mm-hmm. so to speak. And and you didn't know where you were going, but you couldn't stay there anymore. Right. And I think people underestimate the power of that insight, mm-hmm. you know, that we have to have a plan to get better or go to the next place. But sometimes we just have to have the decision, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. and the rest kind of unfolded a little as you gave us little insights into. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It just kind of unfolded and, mm-hmm. um, and reading was very helpful in mm-hmm. that year of mm-hmm. just learning about myself and, and kind of beginning to understand what had been happening for many years in my life of just this process of kind of losing myself and trying to be what I thought other people wanted me to be um Mm -hmm. and um uh yeah and so just moving through that year and so, you know, that, that takes us into, you know, this idea of women and losing their voices. And, um, it is, you know, and, and, and both of our work as therapists, I know we encounter this all the time, that it is can be very hard for women to understand and identify their voices. And like you said so well, that women lose their voices. Why Why do you think it is hard? And, and again, a big question that probably has societal reasons and mm-hmm. cultural reasons and um, religious reasons even, but that why is it hard for women to understand and identify their voices? Yeah, I, I think it's hard for a lot of reasons. Um, you know, if you think about it, all throughout our life, people 
are leaving us messages. You know, if you think of our brain as a giant voicemail yes. inbox, um, people are leaving us messages. Wow. And some messages we delete. Yes. kind of pass through one year and not the other. Mm-hmm. And some messages we keep saving and replaying over and over again. We sure do. And some yeah. of those messages, you know, people leave intentionally. Mm-hmm. You know, um, instances where children have grown up in abusive households and they are told they're not good enough yeah. or they're dumb or mm-hmm. that sort of thing. Those messages stick. But I think for a lot of people and um a lot of the messages in that voicemail inbox are messages that are left indirectly. Mm-hmm. You know, they hear some, we hear someone say something about someone else and we think, oh, I don't want them, to, I don't want to I don't want to fall in that, that category. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So silent vow, that's never going to be me. And so yeah. all these, we have all these messages that are left for us and, if, and we internalize those messages, we repeat those messages and eventually the kind of cacophony, mm-hmm, <laughs> if you will, mm-hmm. of the messages drowns out our true gut, our true intuition. Because that's really, you know, when I talk about this idea of voice, that's really what voice is. It's it's intuition. It's your gut. It's okay. your uh-oh feeling. Like, uh-oh, yeah. this doesn't feel right. This right. doesn't feel safe. Mm-hmm. I, don't, mm-hmm. I don't know that this should be happening. Um, and those messages drown out that that true voice until that's all we hear are these other voices, you know, the voice Mm -hmm. of the coach uh, Mm -hmm. from middle school, uh, the voice of a parent, the voice of a sibling, the voice. And unfortunately our brains save the negative messages Mm -hmm. uh, a lot. Mm -hmm. And, um, and so we just replay those messages and hear those voices. And then that kind of becomes our voice and we lose our voice. And then I think what can happen is we can adapt um, if you will, a false voice and a voice that is not true to us. And so for instance, what might that look like? Um, rage, you know, I think rage is a false voice. There's nothing wrong with anger. I say that to my clients all the time. Like sure. Totally like anger is an emotion. We were created to feel angry. It is a part of the human informs us. It Mm -hmm. it absolutely informs Mm -hmm. us. Um, but rage is the dark side of anger. And so mm-hmm. I think rage is one of those false voices. I mm-hmm. think um, sass mm-hmm. and sarcasm yeah. and self-deprecation mm-hmm. uh, would fall under that category of, of a false voice. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a way of being strong that's not necessarily authentic. Right, exactly. Yeah. And, and also it's... Um, it's biting. Yeah. You know, when we are using our true voice and we're speaking from our true voice, um, that is, we, that's not a tool to hurt someone. Right. You know? Yeah. Um, playing small, mm-hmm. you know, being quiet, just literally being quiet. Mm-hmm. And I think that happens to a lot of people that they literally just stop talking. talking. And it's not that they're not mm-hmm. talking, but they just stop giving their opinion. They just stop saying no. They just stop questioning. Yeah. They just become quiet. Um, I think uh, being cute is an example mm-hmm. of a false voice of yeah. kind, you know, being the cute one, sure. a little airheaded, mm-hmm. uh, being funny, mm-hmm. and and it's not that you're not a funny person, but are you have you adapted this false voice because you think people will like you better right. if you're kind of yeah. cute and funny. Yeah, if you're pleasing in that way, if, if you're, you're more accepting. Exactly, exactly. Mm-hmm. Is that more acceptable? Yeah. I, I think we can kind of vacillate on this spectrum of voice where we either get real puffed up yeah. and people are going to hear me, right. you know, and we kind of shout. Right. Or 
the other end of the spectrum where we are really quiet and and mm-hmm. we're not stating our needs, our wants, mm-hmm. our feelings, our thoughts, mm-hmm. and and I, you know, we tend to fall on, on either side right. of those spectrums, and the true voice is in the middle. Yeah, and we don't need to puff up, we mm-hmm. don't need to shout, mm-hmm. uh, and we also don't need to be afraid that our feelings, our needs are going to be too much for someone. Yeah. That we stand in that place of knowing who we are, yeah. understanding why we feel the way we do, mm-hmm. where these thoughts are coming from understanding why we behave the way we do understanding why and how we get triggered Mm -hmm. and we speak from that authentic uh true place and Mm -hmm. so i think that's what it means Mm -hmm. to Mm -hmm. discover your that true voice wow yeah um i love that analogy of the um the voicemail i've never heard that that's amazing Mm -hmm. um you know one of the things that I think about often is that is that women are are, are trained often to mm-hmm. think about others before themselves, yeah. um, and and that can be really hard for them to even recognize their voice because well they're thinking about what Joe and Tommy and mm-hmm. Susie need before they even consider that they might be hungry yeah. right, right. <laughs> exactly um, so let's talk about women and enmeshment with the people in their life and maybe maybe we can define enmeshment it's yes. a word that we throw around a lot but for someone that doesn't use that word what yes would so enmeshment and I wish y'all could see me but because <laughs> I'm doing this yeah it's a great example um, but putting your hands together I yeah know, it, I'm walking I'm my fingers together enmeshment is when it is hard for us to discern where I end and you begin yes and so uh, if you're happy I'm happy if you're sad I'm sad mm-hmm. um, if you've had a stressful day then now I'm stressed like yeah. there's no delineation there's no differentiation between your feelings, thoughts, opinions, and my feelings, thoughts, opinions. Mm -hmm. And it's an interesting thing with with women because I think women are, they are naturally relational. Sure. Um, That's not necessarily a nurture thing. I I believe that's a nature thing. We are relational Mm -hmm. um, beings. Uh, uh, Research shows a little bit more naturally so than men, but guys, you're relational too. (laughs) Um, But but you see that... Mm -hmm. um, you, research bears that out. Uh, Carol Gilligan is this psychologist who has done a lot with female lifespan development. And one of the things that she observed years ago when she was starting her work is that if you observe boys and girls on the playground and if they're playing a game, mm-hmm. um, the boys, it, like if they're playing a game and the ball can't bounce out of the boundaries of the wherever they are, if the ball bounces out, boys will say, you're out, you got to sit down. But if the ball bounces out, girls will say, oh, no, no, it's fine. They'll, they'll adjust and adapt the rules to keep everyone together Wow! so that everyone can keep yeah. playing. Mm-hmm. Whereas boys and their player are like, nope, that's the rules. That's the way the ball went, you're out. Mm-hmm. You're out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Go sit down. And so it's, it's interesting. Mm-hmm. We are just really mm-hmm. relational. And then I think there is kind of a so- socialization aspect that women are encouraged to mm-hmm. then be caretakers and nurturers on top of that natural instinct. Um, I was reading, this is one of my favorite things I've read recently, and Mm -hmm. I keep telling people about it because I think it's fascinating and I think it's so true, but I was reading in this book, uh, uh, they were talking about women and how they develop and and the progression of the loss of voice, and they said, the author said, if you ask a girl at seven what would she like on her pizza, she'll say pepperoni. And if you ask a girl at ten what would you like on her pizza, uh, she'll often say, I don't know, maybe pepperoni? If you ask a girl at 13, what would you like on your pizza? She will more often say, I don't know, what would you like? Wow. 
and yeah, the progression of losing your voice and becoming hyper aware of yeah. everyone around mm -hmm. you and and wanting to please and adapt mm -hmm. and take care of and again there's nothing wrong with those of course. things right. um but you want to do all those things and in the process you lose touch with right. wait i like pepperoni right i want pepperoni right. and that's okay yes. that's um, staying relational but not losing yourself in that process exactly yeah. and when we are enmeshed we lose ourselves in the relationship so um we lose the me within the we mm -hmm. and it just becomes about the we yes and um and the danger in that is that we can fall into this pattern of over accommodation. Mm -hmm. So I'm never going to get pepperoni on my pizza because you prefer mushrooms. But eventually, you know, 30, 40 years into the marriage, you're going to feel really resentful that you never get to you have want pep that pepperoni. That's right. You just <laughs> yeah. want some pepperoni. Yeah. Yeah. And so the dark side of enmeshment mm -hmm. is is you can fall into this pattern of over accommodation which then leads to resentment Absolutely. and resentment is just so corrosive to any relationship whether mm -hmm. it's a marital relationship or mm -hmm. or a friendship yeah and um yeah so then tell us if 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 enmeshment is a is a way that we um lose our voice and it really um it really sort of um capitalizes in a negative way on maybe women's natural relational yes. beings. Yes. Um, and we don't want to do that. Right. Yeah. So, so then differentiation mm -hmm. being maybe the, not, not exactly the opposite, but, mm -hmm. but, but, um, a better way of living. How would you define differentiation for women? Yes. Or for people in general, but since we're talking about women. Yeah. So differentiation is the idea that you and I can be connected. Um, but what you feel, think, and do, and even what you think of me, does not influence what I feel, think, and do, and how I feel about myself. So we are connected, yes. but our experiences are, are separate, which is health. Yeah, right. right. And it's also healthy. Yes. Right. It's also healthy. Because, yes, we never want to demonize or stigmatize, and I think this happens a lot, with uh, a woman's natural nurturing relational instinct, because I think that's one of the things that is so awesome about Absolutely. us. Is how relational we are. But I think we always want to keep it in the healthy zone. Yes. You know, any strength pushed to an extreme becomes a weakness, you know. Yes. And so wow. we want to keep it in the healthy mm -hmm. zone and the healthy zone is differentiation. You know, I can be connected mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. with you and we can be very close friends, which we are. Mm -hmm. um, but we may have differing opinions on yeah. something and mm -hmm. our differing opinions doesn't mean that um, we then have to not be friends. Right. We can still be friends and still have differing opinions. Mm -hmm. Because I think for a lot of people, particularly, let's say if they grew up in a household where there was a lot of high conflict and there mm -hmm. was a lot of anger and rage, mm -hmm. um, as adults, they may fear conflict. They may fear anger. And so they have sort of this core belief of, ooh, if I make someone angry, they won't love me anymore. They will leave me. Yeah. They, they will reject me. So I don't want to make anybody angry. I don't want to disagree because mm -hmm. I don't want there to be conflict mm -hmm. um and so it's really uprooting this lie that a lot of us believe that same equals connection if you yes. and i are same if we are the same then we are connected mm -hmm. if we are different then we are disconnected and that's a lie that a lot of us buy into absolutely that, and, and so well, what's the truth so the truth is we don't have to be the same mm -hmm. but we can be connected yes being 
having different opinions, different feelings mm -hmm. about something does not mean mm -hmm. that automatically leads to disconnection. Absolutely. Being the same is, is not being close. Right. We can be close and be different. Right, exactly. Mm -hmm. And and we I think we have this automatic association that if we're the same, then yeah. we're close. Well and I think I think that we are taught that. Yeah. You know, I think that um you know, even from when little kids want to dress alike, you mm -hmm. know, and, yeah. and that, that being the That's same crazy. is that, that we're, we're close. Mm -hmm. Um, well, switching gears some, yeah. I know that, um, a big passion and focus of yours is, um, emotional health yes. and spirituality. Yes. And, um, why is emotional health such an important part of spirituality? And when we don't have that, what are some of the pitfalls that we can fall into? Yes. So I, th what I've observed is that a lot of times we, um, we can think those are two separate things. Mm -hmm. Like there's emotional health and wellness, yeah. mental health and wellness, and then there's um, spirituality. Yeah. There's faith and spirituality, spiritual health. But what I've observed in my work with clients over the years is that really it's all the same thing. Um, that we cannot be emotionally healthy unless we are spiritually healthy and we cannot be spiritually healthy unless we are emotionally healthy. So we cannot be emotionally healthy unless we have um, a sense of something greater than us, a power that is greater than us, that there is a plan, mm -hmm. um, that um, there is a purpose, that there is something bigger than us mm -hmm. than just our own desire to be the director of the show and, and control our life. But on the other side of that coin, we can I don't believe we can be spiritually healthy unless we're emotionally healthy because if we don't have emotional awareness, if we, uh, if we can't identify how we're feeling, yeah. express how we're feeling, mm -hmm. understand where that feeling comes from, how mm -hmm. it gets triggered, mm -hmm. how we behave when mm -hmm. we're having that feeling, um, then we're going to have a tendency to stuff our feelings. We're going to have yeah. a tendency to disconnect from them, try to ignore mm -hmm. them, try to avoid them. And we're going to use our faith and spirituality to do that. Yeah. So I'm not going to worry because worry is a sin. Right. You know, I'm going right. to let go and let God. Right. And, and all of, you know, I'm, I'm going to believe that God's got this. And God does have it. But right. God also gave us the ability to feel for a reason. Yes, because absolutely. every emotion mm -hmm. is a messenger. Mm -hmm. You know, it's telling us something mm -hmm. about uh, our environment around mm -hmm. us. And so if we aren't letting ourselves feel, then we're not receiving all the messages that we need to be receiving. Absolutely. You know? And so we have to be careful mm -hmm. um, to not use our faith and spirituality as a way to numb and disconnect from our right. emotions. And, right. and we can't fear that our emotions are going to make our faith and spirituality mm -hmm. messy. Right. Um, that it it is both. Yeah. It is both and. And, and um, spirituality can really be weaponized. Oh, yeah. You know, mm -hmm. against ourselves. Yeah. Um, or, or against other people. So yeah. we can suppress our own emotions yeah. with it. We can also suppress other people's. Oh, absolutely. Well, you know, you sh you know that's not having faith. Yep. You know, I mean, all, all the statements that so mm -hmm. many of us have heard. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Well, tell me, um, you know, I want to circle all the way back to Cultivate. Yes. Which is just... I got to, you know, see this dream of yours come to fruition. Yeah. Can you tell us about what is Cultivate for, for those that don't know yeah. and, and why did you start it? Yeah. So um, Cultivate is, um, it is an organization um, that consists of 
bi-monthly gatherings and now a counseling center. And we help women cultivate joy, courage, and freedom in their lives as they pursue emotional and spiritual health. And so the idea of Cultivate um, came to me in 2014. So in 2014, I just started noticing some trends. I felt like Mm -hmm. they were trends Mm -hmm. um, in the community. Mm -hmm. Um, At the time, um, one of the churches here in Atlanta had started a women's gathering called The Grove. Mm -hmm. And thousands upon thousands of women would show up on a Monday night, absolutely once a month, mm-hmm. to attend the Grove. Mm-hmm. And in the pouring down rain, they would show up. They would stand <laughs> yeah. in line to mm-hmm. enter the building. And I just thought, that is amazing. Mm-hmm. Like, women are hungry yeah. for truth. Mm-hmm. And not like bumper sticker, sure. put a magnet on your refrigerator, sure. easy truth. But they are hungry for depth. hard, yeah. depth, mm-hmm. truth. Mm-hmm. Um, I also noticed that... Um, uh, authors that maybe 20 years ago would have been in the back of the bookstore were now in the front of the bookstore. You know, authors like Jen Hatmaker and mm-hmm. Sean Nequist and mm-hmm. Beth Moore and Glennon Doyle, all these authors who talk about faith and spirituality mm-hmm. were now at the front and they were best-selling authors and they were becoming household names. Mm-hmm. And so again, there just seemed to, seemed to be this hunger amongst the female community for rich, deep, emotional and spiritual truth. Mm-hmm. In other areas of my life, on Facebook, I am an <laughs> avid Facebooker, and I'm just—it's yeah. okay. I'm just, okay. With it is it. what it is. It, it is it's what just, it is. Yes, it's authentic. It, yes. it is. I'm just owning it. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I noticed in a lot of the community groups that I was a member of, a lot of people were asking for counseling referrals, and I thought, you know, I think people would more people would go to counseling if they knew where to go. Mm-hmm. But they don't know where to go. And Googling Counselor Atlanta is a really daunting and overwhelming kind of scary task. Mm -hmm. Because you get all these results and, you know, there's some bad counselors. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. That's just the truth, you know. And so I started thinking, is there a way that we can encourage women in Atlanta to be emotionally and spiritually healthy. Mm. I think, you know, there are organizations who do a great job at one or the other, but is there a way to, to do both? To, to integrate in, it. To integrate it and yeah. to encourage women to pursue emotional and spiritual health and to make it accessible. Mm-hmm. And so that was in 2014. And so over the next three years, I just brainstormed Cultivate. And um, Cultivate had many different iterations over those three years, uh, lots of, of ideas, and um, and I would take little steps to, to make Cultivate happen, and then I would lose my nerve, and I'd like, mm-hmm. go back in my hole, and <laughs> then I'd take another little step, and I'd like, nom, 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 and go back <laughs> in my hole. And um, finally, I landed on the idea that um, Cultivate could be a gathering for women. And so I reached out to this, and so fall of 2016, I reached out to my two friends, Robin English and Mary Ryan, Mm -hmm. and I shared with them the idea of Cultivate and, you know, asked them to, you know, would you be interested in partnering and and kind of let's bring this to life and Mm -hmm. let's serve the women of Atlanta. And, um, and so we met a couple of times and then I totally lost my nerve and I stopped emailing them. And, I don't know this part of the, I don't yeah. know this chapter. Yeah. yeah. Just like Just radio stop. silence, like, like I, yeah. I left the city. Yeah. <laughs> and um, so then fast forward a few months to February mm-hmm. 2017, I was speaking at a women's retreat um, up in Gainesville, Georgia, and I was 
uh, and the topic of the retreat was living loved. And, um, and I was pulling out of the parking lot and, um, and the, the topic of the retreat had been very near and dear to me. Mm -hmm. Writing the talks for the retreat had, had, uh, been healing for me on a lot of levels, uh, just forcing me to look at just stuff in my own yeah. life. Um, and when I was pulling out of the parking lot, I thought, you know, if I do nothing else with my life, when I take my last breath, I want to be able to say that I told women they were loved by God. Wow. And, and then I thought wow. the only reason that cultivate is not coming to life is because I'm scared, yeah. you know, because I had literally been thinking about cultivate every day for three years. Yeah. I would, you know, my joke, but this is real. This is a true story. <laughs> Some people fall mm -hmm. asleep counting sheep, and I would fall asleep thinking, thinking about, about cultivating every night. Wow. And so I thought, you know, the reason I'm not moving forward and I'm not saying, hey, Mary and Robin, let's do this, is fear. I was afraid it would be hard. I was afraid it, mm -hmm. if it failed, that would be embarrassing. Mm -hmm. um, I was afraid I didn't know how to do something mm -hmm. like this. Yeah. Um, wow. Just all these things. Mm -hmm. And so I reached out to Miriam later that week, and, and I said, you know, I, I think it's just fear, and I can't. Mm -hmm. I personally made a promise to myself two years ago. I was I was no longer going to live in fear, mm -hmm. and um, and so she said, "Well, let's meet, let's have lunch, and talk about it." And so we met and talked through it, and we decided, you know what, let's hold one gathering, and if people show up, fabulous. Great. If they don't, mm -hmm. we were at least faithful to the call. Mm -hmm. And so we sent out an invitation to everyone we knew, mm -hmm. and uh, we were planning to have it at my house. We were, I, I was hoping, we were hoping for 35 people. I don't know why 35, but that just seemed like it's a number. Yeah. number. Mm -hmm. And people kept RSVPing and it became clear that, uh, my house was not going to work. Mm. And Miriam worked at Kairos church in Sandy Springs and Kairos graciously, uh, let us meet there. And so we held the first gathering on May 9th, 2017 mm -hmm. at Kairos and 125 women showed wow. up. Wow. And every time I tell that story, I still get choked up because mm -hmm. it was just such an example of God's incredible abundance, yeah. like his abundant answer mm -hmm. to prayer, mm -hmm. um, you know, three years of prayer of like, mm -hmm. what is this that you put on my heart? I can't shake it. I keep yeah. trying to walk away from it mm -hmm. and I keep being drawn back to it. Mm -hmm. And, and I remember after the gathering, I just literally like sobbed all the way home, just mm -hmm. so overwhelmed by the goodness and the abundance yeah. of that evening. And um, so we decided to start holding gatherings. Mm -hmm. And so we meet every other month. Mm -hmm. And um, we always have a speaker because we believe it is important to learn from each other's stories. Mm -hmm. Your story doesn't need to be finished. You don't need to have it all wrapped up in a bow. Mm -hmm. But it's important to share our chapters because mm -hmm. every chapter has a meaning. Mm -hmm. And we have um, a time of worship and music. Mm -hmm. And then we always have a speaker. Mm -hmm. And... Um, and we had, and every eve, every gathering has a theme. We've uh, had some gatherings uh, where we've talked about anxiety, mm -hmm. um, some gatherings where we've talked about what do you need to say yes to in your life. Mm -hmm. uh, other themes have been on disconnection and loneliness, mm -hmm. um, learning to be carried by love, learning to let people love us. Yeah. We're so good at loving other people, but are we good at receiving love? Yeah. And so last year. I started thinking, okay, well, what's the goal with Cultivate? Mm -hmm. I, I'm, I'm a very goal task oriented person, so yes. I was like, okay, well, what's yeah. the point? Like, are, are we just going to keep having the gatherings? That fat, that's fabulous, but, you know, mm -hmm. where are we going here? Mm -hmm. And so I've been sitting with that for several months, 
and one day again it kind of hit me and I'd never thought about this before in all of the iterations of Cultivate this had never been one of them it just hit me Cultivate Counseling mm. and I was like well yeah yeah, <laughs> that seems that's like a logical yeah. next step in a logical yeah. outgrowth of emotional and spiritual health the combination yeah, yeah to be able to provide a, you know a real life way for women to in addition to the gatherings to work on that exactly mm-hmm. exactly like yeah. if, okay. if we're all about emotional mm-hmm. and spiritual health then let's actually provide, provide it. it yeah and so um so i began talking with different people trying to figure out what would that look like and what you know to set it up and and so forth and so on and so cultivate counseling officially opened june first or first week of June last year mm-hmm. and um, one of the distinctives with Cultivate Counseling we serve women and couples um, but one of the distinctives is that we offer affordable counseling um, because we believe everyone deserves the opportunity to be free of their hurts and habits and everyone deserves access to excellent counseling and so that has Great. been really exciting to to um, provide and open the door uh, for counseling to people who maybe yeah. can't afford in-town rates otherwise. Which is such a, it is a really a, a, a common deterrent for people getting help. Yes. Is, yes. is the affordability of it. Right, exactly. Mm-hmm. It, I kind of started doing some research and observing, and, and I observed that there's about 50% of the population that's priced out of counseling. Wow. You know, because they yeah. either make too much money where they don't qualify for really low fee community mm-hmm. counseling or they don't make enough money where they can afford counseling yeah. in the city mm-hmm. and so uh so our desire is really to serve mm-hmm. that 50 percent mm-hmm. and to, and and if for some reason we can't see you then we will make sure you find some place that you can be seen um, so it's been very exciting to mm-hmm. see the gatherings grow mm-hmm. and to see the counseling center um, we now have two staff therapists sarah collins who you've interviewed mm-hmm. and uh, becca, becca hamilton just joined last mm-hmm. month and so it, it's been an exciting it. journey and you're doing good work well, it's well, good work so. and it's good to see it um you know when i think about um what you've started with cultivate and and being afraid it's you know on the outside we all see um quite an astounding thing that has been created for the women in Atlanta um and you know before at the beginning of your story it was pain that motivated Mm -hmm. the change but would you say you know thinking about what what got you to move past that fear and really just go for it with cultivate was really identifying the purpose that if I want to if I when I die I want to know that I were told women that they're loved by God Mm -hmm. was purpose what gave you courage to move past that fear that's a really good question I think that was a big motivator but Mm -hmm. as you know I'm a big Brene Brown yes and Brene says she has the saying that she says once you have been courageous you can never go back Mm. and because you know what it tastes like and Mm -hmm. so you know when you're not being courageous Mm -hmm. and the, the incongruence and the kind of the falseness of it is too much for you to sit in. And so I became familiar with Brene in 2012, Mm -hmm. and I tend to be a little bit of obsessive, and so... Join the club. (laughs) Yeah. Mm -hmm. So for several months, I, like, read everything that she'd ever written. I listened to everything that I could find on Mm -hmm. her. And and that really started this uh, kind of new chapter in my life of really trying to identify the ways that I was playing small and giving into fear. Yeah. Both professionally and personally. Mm-hmm. And and I just kind of made the decision I can't I can't do it anymore. It uh-huh. is just not 
good for me. I mean, I could keep doing right. it because on the surface, I'll... Yeah, it, like, it's more convenient. Right, it's yes. always easier. <laughs> right. It's always easier. Right. But I, I made that promise to myself mm-hmm. that I, I want to live a, a brave life and I don't okay. want to give in to fear anymore. And so okay. really leaving, my, leaving the job at the counseling center and starting my private practice was mm-hmm. a huge piece of that decision because mm-hmm. I'd always thought about having a private practice, but mm-hmm. I'd always convince myself, oh, you don't... You don't have a business mind. Mm-hmm. You don't know how to sure. do bookkeeping. You know, all, like the all the things, right? And um, and but one day I realized, like, oh, I'm just staying where I am because I'm scared. I can't yeah. do it, and so I I can't live like that. And so so having that experience with having left the job and starting the private practice, mm-hmm. and then realizing, no, it's just fear again okay. that's keeping you from okay. moving forward yeah. with Miriam and Robin mm-hmm. with cultivate. I realized, no, I, I can't live like that anymore. And so it was that realization. It was like what Brene says, once you've been courageous, you can't go back. Yeah. And I couldn't go back. You couldn't force yourself back into that tiny box to yeah. play small again. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think yeah. that's good for all of us to, you know, to remember and to hear that story that, you know, after we're courageous even once that we start to build those muscles yeah. it's easier to do it again absolutely yes okay. and and you become more aware of when you're not being when you're giving in to that inner critic and those old lies it you're, becomes more heightened you're sensitized to it mm-hmm. last question okay that i'm asking everyone is um what is one person thing or event that helped you become um who we're listening to today Yes, so I knew you were going to ask this, mm-hmm. and I <laughs> obsessively thought about it. Yes. And um, so I have two answers. Mm-hmm. We'll go with two. Okay, all right. I have two answers. Mm-hmm. I really think, like, if you look at the timeline of my life, I think um, Marist is one of the mm-hmm. most defining things. This is the school you taught this at. This is the school that I taught at. Mm-hmm. Um, because Marist was the gateway to the rest of my life. Mm. And and I really, you know, I felt like Ma- Marist is one of the great evidences of grace in my life, but I really felt, felt like, feel like, um, Marist was God's way of saying, okay, it's time to live again. Like you have spent years in sackcloth and ashes. You Mm -hmm. have blamed yourself. You've punished yourself. Mm -hmm. You have sat in guilt Mm -hmm. and shame. You've sat in hurt Mm -hmm. and it's time to get up and live Mm -hmm. and to take your mat and to live. And, um, so Marist was huge. Mm-hmm. The, the the other part of the Marist story is that in that year two thousand, I mentioned that I rarely went out. Yeah. And so I did. I I mean I rarely went out, but I started teaching at Marist on January third and January thirteenth. So that that second weekend of me teaching there, I felt like going out. Mm-hmm. Like I, I I was like, oh, I would like to go out and, mm-hmm. and do what twenty three year olds do. You know, <laughs> rejoin this world. Rejoin yeah. the land of the living. Yeah. And so I called my childhood friend and I said, hey, let, let's, uh, why don't you call uh, your friend Bowen and see what they're up to. And these were some friends that she knew. And that January 13th, I had briefly met him uh, in December, but that January 13th, I met my husband, Jay. Oh, wow. And and I've always said, had Maris not happened, I never would have met gone Jay. out that night. Yeah. And I never would have met Jay. Yeah. And Jay is... Um, such an and again an evidence of of grace and um and this life that we have and who he is he is exactly what I always 
needed, but I didn't think that I deserved. Mm -hmm. And so I kept chasing, Mm -hmm. you know, after these other things and people in my life. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I, I didn't come to Jay fully healed. There was still some healing and wholeness that needed to be pursued, but I, um, but you know, I kind of came into that relationship mm-hmm. in a much better place, and we instantly started dating, and so that was in 2001. Mm-hmm. So total, we've been together 18 years. Wow. And um, so Maris was the gateway mm-hmm. into that relationship, mm-hmm. I believe. It was the gateway into realizing that I love speaking, mm-hmm. and um, all those years of music, they were mm-hmm. not lost. They yeah. were just that, tr- that being able to be on stage and learning yeah. how to be on stage and in front of people mm-hmm. it was just preparing me for something different. Absolutely. It wasn't preparing me to sing, it was preparing me for something different and, mm-hmm. and I learned how to teach and how mm-hmm. to speak at Marist, mm-hmm. you know. I remember I used to stand outside the doors of the teachers in the history department I would just listen to them teach because mm-hmm. they were such great lecturers and mm-hmm. I would, you know, just make notes of the rhythm of their voice or how they mm-hmm. told a story mm-hmm. or, um, and, and they just, they taught me to teach mm-hmm. and so Marist changed my life yeah and in a lot of ways Marist saved my life mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. I am forever grateful to Marist mm-hmm. um, because they were the gateway to my life now yeah. becoming a counselor and a mm-hmm. speaker mm-hmm. Um, but the other one the other answer that I was going to say which sounds a little cheesy and over dramatic is that I just think that the little and big struggles of my life yes made me who I am yes and mm-hmm. you know I try not to fall into comparative suffering when I say that you know because my instinct, which I'm going to give into it, is I know my life hasn't been as hard as others. Sure. But there have been these things that I've experienced mm-hmm. in my life, and then even later on in my adult life, you know, Jay and I have experienced job loss and unemployment mm-hmm. and two bouts of infertility mm-hmm. and financial loss mm-hmm. and, you know, and uh, and so just all of those things, you know, nothing is wasted. Yes. And that's what I've realized, like, mm-hmm. the, the pain and the hurt and the unfortunate things happen in life but nothing has been wasted like yeah. god has been so good in redeeming everything and i i use everything yeah in in every talk that i give every time mm-hmm. i sit with the client mm-hmm. um it's just none of it has yeah. been wasted, wasted even though it hurt at the time yes and that pain has in some ways become part of the power of the work that you do yeah yeah mm-hmm. i love that well thank you so oh, much thank you it was such a pleasure this has been so much fun For more information on this interview, including a transcript, please go to stillbecoming.net. Please subscribe to and review Still Becoming wherever you listen to podcasts if you like what you heard here today. Thank you for listening.